Welcome to the Church and Culture Podcast, a weekly discussion with James Emery White on the latest trends happening in culture and where and how the church should respond. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of the Church and Culture Podcast. I'm Alexis, and every week I talk with Dr. James Emery White about some pressing cultural trends and stories that are worth, I would say, dissecting just a bit in order to really understand contemporary morality and thought. So the goal here is that we can ground them in a Christian worldview so we can understand their implications and how a Christian might respond to what's going on. So today we're going to take that dissecting scalpel to all things related to cancel culture. This certainly isn't new to this year, but the concept of culture, of cancel culture, is relatively new, and it has had profound impacts on really countless spheres of cultural influence, the church notwithstanding. So, Jim, how about we start off by, could you give us a brief overview of what we mean when we talk about cancel culture? Like, how would an American define cancel culture? I I smile because I just read recently a Pew Research Center which is uh, the survey was all about what do Americans believe cancel culture is? I mean, that's one of the debates about cancel culture is that we're not sure what cancel culture is. And so we're canceling each other over the definition of cancel culture. Um, it, you know, is it accountability? Is it um, some type of, of punishing people unjustly? Is it you know mob kind of justice? Is it censorship? Is it you know, what is it? And and you kind of have two different sides of it. You know, one side just is decrying cancel culture, like you're taking away my freedom of speech and all this kind of stuff, and you're not letting people just talk. And the other side is saying, look, there has to be accountability and 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 things for what you say. And so you you have these two different different ideas about largely two different ideas, and it's even more split down from that in terms of what we mean by cancel culture. And usually it often divides on whether you think it's good or whether you think it's bad. And um, and so those who think it's bad tend to use the phrase cancel culture. Those who think it's good tend to say, no, it's just, you know, good old fashioned accountability or something like that. Um, but the bottom line is it is the effort to block someone from their platform or remove them from their career. And it is, you know, some way, shape or form, silence them, not give them a platform or a career by which to say anything else of like manner, of whatever it was that was offensive or considered, you know, uh, uh, wrong, or politically incorrect, or whatever word you want to use, again, depending upon where you stand on this. But it is it is dramatic. It is, again, uh, it is blocking them from their platform, blocking them from their career. Now, if I'm not mistaken, I mean, I know the the idea of cancel culture is such like a buzz topic nowadays. I feel like it's all over the place, but it is relatively new, this trend, right? Like when did cancel culture become a thing? Was there like a, a moment or an event that marked that marked it? Well, in terms of the phrase cancel culture or canceling somebody that came out of the 1980s from the world of singles. And when you canceled somebody, that meant you broke up with them relationally. You, you weren't dating anymore. So that was a phrase that started to get into the vernacular. And it grew and it grew and it grew outside of the dating realm into just where you would not cancel someone in terms of we're not dating anymore. But it became to where you would cancel someone in a larger sense of the, of the word. Um, it really took on, obviously, a life through the Internet and particularly social media, which means that it didn't really take root until, at best, the late 1990s, really in the 2000s, and really in the last five years, three to five years. 
um, has it really taken off in terms of, of kind of a self-aware thing that is happening in our culture. Um, but the whole idea is that anyone can go online and call someone out or summon others to call them out. And uh, so that is that is a relatively new phenomenon that has been afforded by social media. I want to come back to social media in, a, in, in just a second, because I think there's more there that we can talk about in relation to cancel culture. But in preparation for today's conversation, I was trying to think back on, you know, for those of us for whom cancel culture has not always been the way that we handle conflict, you know, I was wondering whether the rise in cancel culture may in some ways be a response to some type of maybe discontentment that we felt with regards to how we previously dealt with conflict. Like if it's not something that we invented, but it's something that we're responding to, like is the extremity of cancel culture an indication that the previous methods of disagreement or conflict management were unsatisfactory and that's why we're turning to cancel culture? That's a really good question, and 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 I want to try to give it a, a kind of a multifaceted answer. On one level, you could say yes, uh, because there was a sense where, uh, independent of the internet, there was a lack of accountability. You could cover things up easier. You couldn't investigate things as well. And when something was uncovered, it wasn't as easy to disseminate to the public for consumption. And so, in that sense, almost in a journalistic sense, the way journalism works, as you know, um, and, and its role in culture, then, um, then yeah, you could say that that there was a frustration that might have been there in terms of how to handle some of these things. But that's really giving a very narrow aspect of what we're calling cancel culture, uh, a, a great deal of virtue, <laughs> very narrow, great deal of virtue. So let's kind of talk about it in a different sense in terms of of uh, previous methods being unsatisfactory. Previous methods might've been unsatisfactory in some people's minds because they, they weren't able to be nasty enough. They weren't able to get to be vindictive enough. They weren't able to be retrib uh, uh, have retribution enough. And, and so there is a sense to where, um, no, I wanna lash out, I'm, I'm angry, I'm mad, I wanna do something, I'm, I'm gonna, and that is very much something of the last 24 to 36 months that has erupted. We've had an anger culture, which we've talked about on this podcast, we had a whole thing on anger that I would encourage people to listen to, but I, you know, but I do think that there is a sense where, where that anger culture, where we've given in to anger, it's like we, 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 we have been frustrated maybe at times that we're not able to vent our anger enough because we want nothing but blood and we want, we want payment. We want punishment. We want, we really want that. And, and it's, it's not, it's not attractive. And so as a result, there is a sense to where people might've been unsatisfied in the past because they weren't able to get the pound of flesh they wanted against the people they were angry against. And so cancel culture gives them a sense of, of satisfaction they didn't have. It's like, you know, I really did this person harm. I cost them their job. I cost them. I got them off that platform. I made everybody think poorly of them. They did this one tweet or this one statement, and and I, I was able to just destroy their lives, um, or we were able to destroy their lives. Now, and another thing, too, that I would add, because I mentioned this as a multifaceted thing in terms of satisfactory I hope this isn't too far afield for this conversation, but um, you know, I, I've there there is a change in our culture and how we deal with disagreements that is profound. That has happened over the last in my lifetime. Okay, I'm old enough to say that in my lifetime I've seen this change, and that is is that you you take um, you take 
Yeah. And, and um, a small typical town in America. And there was a sense that there was this interdependence upon each other. You know, Farmer John needed this guy who could repair his tractor. And this person had the one with chickens that I needed to get eggs from. And the general store was the one that we all bought from. And, you know, when my house got injured or I needed to have a house raising or something, I knew I was going to need neighbors to help me. Um, you know, if my cow got loose on your property, you know, I was going to count on you being able to help me, let me get over there on that property and get my cow back or whatever. And I mean, without getting into all the interplays that there was of a small town, everybody kind of needed everybody kind of depended on everybody. And there wasn't a sense where you overlooked wrongdoing, but there was a sense where you overlooked petty things because it was like, okay, you know, Fred and Bill, may have gotten mad at each other over something, but Fred knows he needs Bill. And Bill knows there's going to come a day where he needs Fred. And so it's like, okay, we can't let this just be an impasse. We can't let this just be angry. We can't just let this be, we're not going to talk to each other. Um, our town is too interconnected. Our community is too interconnected. We're going to need each other. And so we, we've got to work it out to a degree of at least that level. That's been lost. Um, in an increasingly... Um, you know, online community, global network, um, I can, everybody on my street, I can kind of say, screw you. It doesn't matter because I'm not dependent upon them. And I can be as nasty as I want to be. And, and I don't have to, I'm not going to need you. And I'm not dependent on you for just the basic life and this basic function of my economic world or my relational world. And that's dangerous when we no longer have that kind of community that has that built-in level of accountability. And I think the uh, internet just put that on steroids. And so if we say, you know, the past wasn't satisfactory, um, you know, I think there was a sense where we've lost uh, a past that did help us a lot with this, where we didn't cancel each other so quick, we worked with things. And you only had a cancellation when it was such an egregious affront to the community that the community couldn't function without the cancellation. Hmm. Now you've mentioned like the internet and social media and how it plays into this. And which I think is so interesting because on one hand, we really value privacy. Like, I think that's like a, a another buzzword right now is that we want to be private, but then as you're mentioning, but you can also just, you know, have a public platform where you just, you know, say all the things you always wanted to say. And so I'm curious as to how do you think social media maybe, um, yeah, really, provides a ripe atmosphere for us to kind of maybe overcome any hesitancies that we may have of like wanting to remain private or wanting to be able to retract something that we would say just in full-fledged support of just, if I feel it, I'm going to put it out there. And that, that we kind of attribute to cancel culture in that way. Yeah, I, I, I do. And, and it's funny how um, somebody will say something, and I've seen this a thousand times on blogs and other places where somebody will put something out, they'll realize that, that, you know, I mean, that's not what I wanted to say. And I did that in a fit of whatever, or maybe I had too much to drink that night or whatever. And they, they retract it, they take it down, but somebody in the meantime took a screenshot mm-hmm. and it's almost like, okay, you're busted. And I'm going to, I'm going to insist that you be busted. I know you took it down, but I'm going to insist that you be busted. Um, now, I don't think there's anybody else. Like when you do that to someone, you would never want that done to you where every single thing you've ever said is just going to be immortalized forever and and you're going to be indicted for it forever. I mean, my gracious. Um, But that's kind of what's going on in terms of of how we're interacting with each other. But I think going back to the internet, 
it, the, the reason that this is allowing it is because the, the internet is giving people a platform that never had a platform before. Okay, that's, that's good. That's also bad. <laughs> it's like you're giving people a platform, everybody a platform. And so one negative person can set, try to set whatever agenda they want and try to encourage as many other people to embrace their negative agenda, uh, whether it's warranted or not. Uh, added to that is how uh, everything online, often you can do it in complete anonymity, which means very few, if any, consequences. I can say what I want. I can lambast all this stuff. I can troll all day long, and yet I can hide behind you know, anonymity, um, which is a dangerous thing, which again, go back to our little community you know, analogy. You couldn't do that. You, 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 couldn't, you couldn't do that, but now you can. Um, and again, in this uh, very much an anger culture where everyone is taking offense over everything, and no matter how trivial or small it might be, we're taking all of these things and making them very big. And then, so it's an outlet for all of that. It's just an outlet. And, and, and it's just, and some people just feed, you can almost, you can almost read some of their stuff and realize that they're feasting off of this. It's, it's, they're allowing their emotions to go into hyperdrive through the whole process of verbalizing it and putting it out on social media. And, and, and it just, they're, they're, they're self-amplifying their own feelings and emotions, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger in their own minds and in their own hearts. And then to make matters worse is that then it's all packaged in such a way that all someone else has to do is hit forward and you know and passing it on and so it can take on this life of its own and so in many ways i as someone who uses social media uses the internet and embraces you know i'm, I'm no luddite but uh, as but as someone who is also you know hopefully as a christian since it does to culture i can also say that there is much about the internet that is being seized by the demonic and they're having a field day. And unfortunately, Christians aren't thinking Christianly about their own use of it, and much less how it's praying to their basest emotions and instincts. Mm, that's interesting, especially with the emotional factor to this, because I think that one of the many deceptions of cancel culture is that while it does seem to maybe initially, you know, quench this desire for justice that we have of like, yes, like finally, like that person got what was due to them. We tend to not because of the nature of social media and just internet in general and all of our access to information, we don't stick around long enough to see its lasting impacts. We've already moved on by that point. But since it has been even just a few years since cancel culture has become popular, we are starting to see a little bit of its impacts beyond, you know, the first five minutes that something is shared or the initial initial moment of cancel of canceling so is its devastation are we seeing that to be more permanent as well or are we seeing ourselves kind of loosening loosening up on our intensity over time yes okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's one of those questions um i mean it, it really can people you know people can have their lives devastated and and there is and i have sensed in in some of the things that i've read a real callous disregard Oh, he lost his job. Good. He deserved it. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, you're talking about a person with a spouse and maybe children and a livelihood and, and, and a life destroyed. I mean, and that doesn't mean that there can't be appropriate response when someone says something that is, you know, ridiculous and someone can push back on that, but to, to relish the, the okay, knives out. 
you know, and, and I'm not going to rest because of what you said or the stance that you took until I have your life, you know, in the gutter and your job gone and you fired and your platform removed. So I do think that there is a sense where the social media cycle moves on, but you've got a devastated life left behind. And, and I think that um, anyone who cares at all about living a Christ life you have to ask yourself, you know, was was that proportional? Was that was that appropriate? Was that was that the way we should have reacted to this? Should we have reacted in a way that the goal was destruction uh, and complete? Um, uh, you make sure that any 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 I, any sense of someone looking at their character that is thoroughly assassinated, and we've really blown this up to be a holistic picture of their life. Um, and you know, have we have we thought at all as Christians about okay, is that was that Jesus-y? Is that the best way to do this? Particularly if it's brother to brother or sister to sister, Christian to Christian. I mean, I mean, as if somehow if you disagree over something, even if it's a significant disagreement, somehow that gives you a right to throw out all aspects of Christian civility and Christian community and love and grace. It doesn't. And also, though, one other thing too that's really interesting is is that. This whole cancel culture thing can backfire. In other words, it can do the exact opposite of what someone wants. For example, it's been interesting for me, and I was reading actually about this this morning. Um, J.K. Rowling has, for the last several weeks, if not months, has taken a lot of heat, particularly in the U.K., for her stance about uh, all things trans. Mm -hmm. And she's taken a very conservative stance that, you know, your biological sex at birth, that's what you are. I mean, you're biologically a man or a woman, and she just doesn't have a lot of patience for all the trans kind of, you know, uh, rethinking of what it means to be a woman as if as if your biological sex is something fluid or plastic. She says she's not necessarily anti-trans. I mean, you know, just don't call yourself a biologically sexually a woman. She's she's taken some very conservative stances. Well, um, the cancel culture, if you will, came out in full force, wanting you know to somehow nobody to buy her books anymore to make sure she doesn't go to make sure that there's protests at every Harry Potter event. So she doesn't get invited. And there was like, whatever it was the 25th anniversary for, I can't remember what anniversary it was. And they had all the actors and actresses there and everybody, but JK Rowling, which was comical. She's the one that created it, you know, and, and but, but that, that's, that's what was happening. So she was, she was being attacked and, and people were trying to almost remove her separate JK Rowling from Harry Potter. Cause they loved Harry Potter, but now they hate JK Rowling and her stance. And the response was, and this was just something I read this morning in the Telegraph, um, UK newspaper, that um, uh, ever since she took this stand and everybody's been trying to cancel her, her books have sold in the UK more than ever. Hmm. And, and so it can backfire. Um, but I do think overall, and this is my sense, I think everybody's getting sick of it. I think is everybody's getting sick of how we're so quick to take uh, enormous offense at almost anything and everything, how it's almost like we can't do it. And I, I think that where the pressure point started, where people started to say, okay, time out, was where cancel culture started going after comedians. And comedians, by their very nature, are not exactly um, sensitive, <laughs> and they're not exactly politically uh, correct. And, um, and, uh, and so it's like, wait a minute, comics even were saying, whoa, I mean, if I can't joke about our world, if I can't make jokes about these kinds of things, then, you know, then, it, then it's like, we're, we're into something else. We're into, 
censorship. We're into we're getting into freedom of speech issues, and I do think cancel culture has gone from just oh that offended me to oh I really disagree. So now I'm coming after you. Mm-hmm. I don't want you to have a platform or a position or a job where you can make statements that either philosophically, theologically, politically I disagree with. It's not that what the person said was egregious. It's that I don't like it. I don't want it. And so I want to silence that voice, silence that opinion. And I think the more it's gotten into that realm, as well as just ridiculous offense over the smallest of things, when, when you weren't even personally related to it, it's like, like increasingly people are like just choosing to be offended. And it's like, oh, I'm so mortified by this. And it had nothing to do with them. And I think that uh, people are getting a little, little weary of that and, and, and to, in my thinking appropriately so. For sure. Well, and there also seems to be this kind of underlying assumption with cancel culture. Like if you're going to completely silence somebody, you're essentially saying that like people just can't change, right? Like nothing that you would produce moving forward or any thought that you would have could be redemptive Um, that they, yeah, they can't be be, um, redeemed in because of a previous decision or thought or whatever. We can talk in just a moment, kind of like a Christian perspective of that, but I'm thinking of this from a secular culture because I see a lot of tension here between this, what I would say is kind of the more prominent philosophy that, um, within our secular culture that humans are inherently good, right? Like the, we're not sinners, we're mistakers. We don't like to, to feel like, I don't know, we're, there's inherently something broken with us. And yet we have this irredeemable sentence of cancel culture coupled with a general optimism about humankind. Do you feel that tension or do you, like- is I think there's just- a word for it. I think it's hypocrisy. Okay. Uh, and, 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 I, and, 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 and let me bridge off of that in terms of, of something that, that comes to mind. Um, on all sides, and this is very painful for me, and this is very um, concerning to me, but I just see across the board in our world uh, a, a gracelessness, a legalism, and an intolerance. The irony of that coming from Christians is that if we're to be known for anything, it is for grace. It is to, to be not legalistic, and which Jesus roundly condemned. And in terms of relational tolerance, I mean, we're to be the most affirming, accepting people in the world. The bitter irony for those who are not Christians is that what they have long pointed the finger at Christians about, which is a lack of grace, a lack of tolerance, and being legalistic, is what they themselves now have embraced in a full-throated way, and they're among the most graceless, intolerant, legalistic people on the planet in terms of, but just with different agendas and toward different things. And so... We're a grace-starved world, and and it's it's and 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 in one sense, um, missionally and evangelistically, that's 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 okay, um, because that's what a post-Christian lost world would obviously be marked by, and it's the one commodity that we have to offer. It's the one great distinctive of the Christian faith is grace. But what makes it difficult is when Christians themselves so exhibit a gracelessness that it almost cuts our feet out from underneath us and mutes our voice on the one thing where we could be speaking to the world most clearly. Mm. I fear that there's a couple of unintended consequences of cancel culture that I'm starting to see, even anecdotally within myself and then with others too, is that we, we are either placing the subtle pressure on each other to either shy away from taking a firm stance on 
anything because we fear that maybe we'll change our minds later. Or we assume that once we've made a a stance, we have to maintain that stance no matter what, even if we later feel differently about it or gain new information about it. Like, how do we cultivate, you know, an understanding of wisdom that still leaves room for a changed mind? Because I feel like that's important. We should be able to change our mind about something, right? I think that we, it's, it's how we present it, that when we do speak out in a public forum, and you have a public platform, I do, if you're a teacher, if you blog, if you do anything like that, you're, you're, you're speaking out. And I think that, that what I, I think there's a, there should just be a, a basic, the, the key, the answer to your question is there should be a basic humility in how we present things. Uh, in a sense where, you know, this is how I best understand it. This is where I'm, I'm at. Um, and a humility of when our mind has changed. Uh, I remember reading a book long ago in graduate school where it went to 20 leading theologians. And the title of the book was How My Mind Has Changed. Mm. And I thought it was fascinating to read these, these leading theologians. The book's out of print, so don't even try to find it. You won't get <laughs> it in our show notes. <laughs> But uh, 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 half my library doesn't exist to the world anymore. Um, but uh, all the more reason why it's precious. Um, but uh, that, but you know how how my mind has changed is 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 something that is something almost like we're afraid or ashamed to say. And and I think the real mark of wisdom is that well, my goodness, of course, my life has changed. My mind has changed on things and things that I think. And I'll I'll, I'll give myself as an example. There are things that I spoke out about way too dogmatically, with way too much fervor and passion, with all the wisdom and, and insight and, and knowledge of a 28-year-old. <laughs> mm. I'm sorry, all you 28-year-olds. But when you look back on your life, it's at, at like with me, I'm 60. Um, you, you, you realize that it's not that your convictions are any less settled or that your view of biblical authority is any less, but you realize that there's... You, you, you learn, you grow, your, your mind, your thinking expands, you, you, you see uh, things are, are, particularly as you go through life, that are the, the applications are often less wooden, even if, even if the eternal principle is there. And so I do think that there needs to be a place where we allow what real wisdom is, is that you're continually learning and you've off, what you've ever offered has been through humility, so that when you come back to it and you say, you know, I, I think... I think that my views have changed a bit here. It's not something that is a scandal as much as it is an ever-growing, evolving relationship with Jesus and knowledge and learning and reflection and, and thought and prayer. And I, I hope that some of my views are at the very least deeper and convictions are at least deeper and more you know, widely understood at my age than they were 40 years ago. And what if we gave other people that same courtesy, you know, to, to give yeah. them the time to yeah. mature? That would be a beautiful well, yeah. Well, and it's like it's like when people say, "This is something I'll go." I'm really going afield here, but I just thought of this. Um, like there was there's a there's a big movement now that's part of uh, it is related to cancel culture, where people will look at an organization uh, or and say, you know, um, and really critique them like you can't really trust that source because 300 years ago that organization did this yeah you know embrace slavery or or did this or or what or or you know uh, had awful things with women and so it's like that's that that's the heritage of the person you're listening to or the organization it's like <laughs> you know uh you know that's that's not the best way to make a contemporary assessment i mean it's not that it's irrelevant 
It's just that you need to ask yourself, okay, I mean, was there repentance along the way? Was there a change of view? I mean, was there repudiation of these things? And I mean, you know, you, you, you have to, you have to give people um, the ability to go on that kind of journey. Hmm. I have one more question, but before I get to mine, I'm curious, are there any other aspects of cancel culture that maybe you're aware of that we haven't even talked about yet? Yes. Hmm. When we think about cancel culture, we think about uh, uh, a group of people uniformly offended uh, going after the silencing of an individual. And in the name of uh, and I don't mean that I'm not trying to make this sound as pejorative as it sounds, but in a kind of a self-righteous way. Mm. What isn't often talked about is a self-imposed cancel culture where an individual goes after the silencing of a group that might speak to them. Mm. And so there's a sense where now, and Cass Sunstein wrote about this, where we now live in a world of the daily me. Um, where I only follow the sports teams that I like. I only follow the news feeds that I agree with. Um, I only um, read the blogs that affirm choices I've made or predispositions that I have. I, if I research something, I'm going to sites that I'm pretty confident will tell me what I want to hear. If I stumble, it's to just trying to find everything I can to discount what I just read because I have a certain thing, a, a voice that I want to affirm. I've got the daily me. And so I don't allow anything in that challenges. I don't allow anything in other than uh, what I want. And so I cancel, functionally cancel every other avenue into my life. And so pretty soon we're just hearing the sound of our own voice. And that's a type of cancel culture that nobody's talking about, where you're canceling outside influences in order to reaffirm perspectives you already have. And uh, I think that's behind an awful lot of the misinformation floating around. I think it's behind a lot of the conspiracy theories. I think it's behind a lot of the crazy that we've got. I think it's behind a lot of the, the polarization that we have between various sides and the, politis the politicization of everything. And, and it's like, you know, if you've, if you've got, and, and again, I mean, I'm an equal opportunity offender. You know, it, it's, it's, it's just as bad to have MSNBC on all day as it is Fox News on all day. I mean, you're getting a perspective but it, trust me, it's a perspective. Mm. And, and a Christian rises above those. A Christian rises above left, right, Republican, conservative, you know, uh, Democratic. Um, and even in some sense, what is considered conservative, because conservative now, I mean, like if I might consider myself conservative, but now there's, there's so much stuff thrown into being conservative mm -hmm. that, you know, it's like, you know, whoa, maybe I need to rethink what term I use because I am conservative, but you're throwing a whole bunch of, you know, other stuff into that. But I think a Christian rises above all of that. And, and it's like, you know, I, I don't fit into a neat, tidy box. I'm a Christian. And also I, I take things in from a wide range because I'm trying to study culture and understand it and bring Christ to bear on it. And so I do think that the, the flip side of cancel culture is where you're canceling anything that would come into your life or thought that you just quite frankly don't want to hear. And that's can be terribly unhealthy too. Now, don't get me wrong. There's certain influences I don't think any Christian should allow into their life, and um, and um, and um, that are just unhealthy. Um, and there's a lot that I think Christians are taking in right now that are unhealthy. I mean, it's making them more angry and more polarized and more all kinds of stuff, and um, and fed a warped theology. But um, but by and large, it's just where we want to hear the sound of our own voice, and that's that's dangerous.
Mm, well, I think my final question then actually segues well, because one of the benefits, right, of being, of having your own personal, I don't know, like your, your news source, that's all, you know, the things that you personally curated is that there's not a lot of the discomfort of disagreement. And we, most people don't really love that disagreement, at least in person, right? It might be easier to disagree online, but so I think then, I guess my question here, and this is sad that we have to ask this question, but I think it's just really indicative of the type of society that we live in. But like, when it comes to disagreements, you know, if we put ourselves into positions as Christians where we do disagree with somebody, we've created that space for disagreement. How can we disagree with somebody without feeling the need to cancel them? Or are there certain disagreements within the church that deserve, quite frankly, yeah. this type of heavy handedness? Well, let's talk about where there is a need to be, where there is a need for separation, there is a need for some type of break. The Bible talks about this in Titus, where it says, warn a divisive person, and if they persist, have nothing to do with them. In other words, this is a person who brings division into the church, constant division, um, unnecessary, harmful division over things that are over tertiary matters, or just whatever it is, creating suspicion when it's not there, and, and such. And so Titus is very clear. Warn them once. If they persist, have nothing to do with them. Um, and... Um, you know, I know that sounds harsh, but I, I didn't write it. Mm -hmm. And so you also have like where Paul says in writing, he says, so let me see if I've got this right. You've got a, a man who's living with his, I think it was his, um, his, uh, his daughter-in-law he was having sex with or something like that. It was all this kind of crazy mother, I think. Yeah. His mother. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> his mother-in-law and, 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 and like the church was like turning a blind eye to it. And okay. And Paul says, no, if they refuse to repent and end that, they're to be removed from the church. I mean, and this is a this is a discipline matter. This is an integrity matter, and so I think that whenever you have and I've and I've talked with people too over other things that are, are maybe less, but still, where um someone will say, and I respect this, they'll say, yeah, I can't follow that person anymore because every time I would read what they did on Facebook or listen to their blog or whatever they did, I just would get so exercised unnecessarily, or I would find myself angry at the end of it, or I'd find myself, it just wasn't healthy for me emotionally or spiritually. And I really appreciate where they said, I just stopped following them, you know, and, and you know, or, so I think that's, th those are, those can be really good things. Mm. Um, and, um, and I, and we've talked before on this thing that if you're listening to something and you just find yourself after every time, just more jazzed up, less loving toward people, more angry, more willing to polarize, more wanting to go on the war path, that's probably not something that was of the Holy Spirit. Um, when it was over something like, you know, whatever, I mean, it, it un unnecessary stuff. Um, and I think that when there are serious biblical theological issues at hand, where you have to ask yourself, can I remain in good conscience in fellowship with this organization or give financial support to this organization because of where they've gone biblically or theologically, where they've really left historic Christian orthodoxy? I mean, so I think there's, there's, there's places for that. But having said all that, what I, what, I, what I wish there was, was when we disagree, if we would immediately check our spirits against the sin of anger, and just realize, okay, I'm going to talk about the Christian community here. Um, my, my initial reaction might be anger. My initial reaction might be offense. But then I need to tell myself, wait a minute, but I'm talking about a brother in Christ, or I'm talking about a sister in Christ, who Jesus is foolish over. Mm 
who is and he's as foolish over them as he is me. He's foolish over them. And 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 so and so here I am looking down on them or condemning them or being angry at them. Whoa, you know, I don't want to tick Jesus off because I'm taking on one of his kids. I mean, I'm one of his kids, but that's one of his kids too. And and so I want to begin with a posture of love. I want to begin with a posture of, hey, we're family. And that we're, we're closer even than 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 flesh and blood family, the Bible says. And we're gonna be spending eternity together. And and so I want to start off with that as my foundation that we're talking to each other as Christian brothers and sisters. And that means a whole bunch of stuff. We're loyal to each other. We're gonna give each other the benefit of the doubt. Um, I'm not going to, if I have anger, I'm going to repent and pray and realize that that's not the, be, the way to begin. I'm going to begin with a sense of, of grace and love. And, 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 and I'm going to, I'm not going to assume certain things. I'm, I'm going to, I mean, I'm just, I'm going to go at it with a totally different perspective. And, and I want to listen and I want to learn. I want to understand. And, and like I said, I'm going to give it the benefit of the doubt and, and not just be, you know, unduly suspicious about things. And, and, um, and I can learn, as we say a lot around Mac, I'm going to, if we need to at the end, agree to disagree agreeably, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and that's legal on, on things, you know, where, and, and, and that's what I, and that's one of the things that I love about Mac, you know, I'll just brag on our church. I love how our church is probably, I don't know, on any given election, maybe split right down the middle and 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 is full of all different kinds of diverse viewpoints and and on things not on the major theological matters or biblical matters but on a whole bunch of stuff in our world and and man we get along and and we love each other and 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 i i i i love that i love that um and and the way it can it can and I'll give here's a, here's a fun example i hope this isn't too far afield i, I think this is relevant but I'll, maybe it's a good point maybe even to end on i don't know but i remember when back in 2020 when so much happened with the death of George Floyd, George Floyd and, and race issues. And I remember there was one uh, white man in our church who was genuinely moved by it all and touched by it all, but he really was clueless. He was just caught flat-footed, like a lot of white people were, in terms of not feeling or understanding the response of the Black community, how this was just one death too many and too egregious. And, you know, I mean, it was just, he was out of touch. And he went to another, he went to another man in our church, a Black man who was a friend, and he's just said, help me understand, help me understand what you guys are feeling and going through and just help me understand racism and what your experience has been. It was very genuine. And, and, and this, this uh, black man who was uh, a little older than this guy um, said, you know, if you really want to know, which I know you do, because I know you love me and I love you and we're in Christ together, but, but you know, that, that's, that's more than, than an email or a text, that's a coffee. And I, I be, I would love to have it with you if you want to have it with me. And they did, and they met for like over two hours, and it was just life changing. And it was like, I don't know why there can't be more of that kind of stuff. They're supposed to be because that's the picture of biblical community. That's a picture of it. Um, and neither one was defensive, and both were open and learning, and just, I don't know. I, I just wish there was more of it. I'm, I'm, I'm going to hold out till the day I die, Lex, of being a, an idealist. I'm going to hold out the day I die that we can pull off some semblance of, of a biblically functioning community. I'm going to hold out to the day I die fighting for community and working for it and practicing Matthew 18 and dealing with conflict resolution and, and doing all the hard work. Uh, but because I believe in the dream, I just believe in the dream. And, and I, um, and I, 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 yeah. 
<laughs> I think that's the perfect way to end. I love just the progression from starting with cancel culture to under more examination, like ending on this note of hope and, you know, what God has as a be much better alternative for us. And so I think that's perfect. I hope this was helpful to anyone listening, and I hope that you will tune in again next week. Thanks, Jim. Thank you for listening to this week's installment of the Church and Culture Podcast with Dr. James White. We hope it was not only informative, but challenging and the start to an ongoing conversation. To stay up to date with all the latest, check out the daily headline news and subscribe to the Church and Culture blog, all found at churchandculture.org. You can even keep up with Jim by following him on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at James Emery White. We hope you'll join us next week. Goodbye for now.